I get to introduce the speaker this morning, and I say it's, it's a privilege. It's a cliche to say it's a privilege, but it is a privilege because uh, uh, Jeff Schloss is one of the reasons I, I'm so glad to be here at Westmont College. Now, I don't know how to compliment Jeff without making it sound kind of sappy. Um, Jeff is really smart, um, has a wonderful mind. And I don't often say this of men because it can sound kind of sappy, but Jeff is one of the sweetest people I've ever met. Uh, sweet as in kind, as in gentle, as in uh, patient. Now, he doesn't think any of these things about himself, but uh, this is a man that I have uh, really thrilled to talk with, to laugh with, and to pray with. He also is a professor of biology here at Westmont College, and he is nationally recognized for his scholarship. But uh, I am so glad that Jeff consented to come this morning and tell you his story of how he came to faith in Christ and, and to this place. So would you pray with me that uh, Jeff will just be just nervous enough to be really excited and just calm enough to, uh, to have joy in this. Father, thank you for my brother, for this dear, dear man, and thank you for the sweetness of his life. Lord, bless him now and bless us as he shares with us his story. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. Do I need to do something to turn this on? Are we on? It's great to uh, have Ben introduce me when he's not been here long enough to know what I'm really like. <laughs> he said uh, that today is about sharing our stories, and that's true. I kind of like another word a little better. Uh, it's a little more religious sounding, but we talk about sharing our testimony. And the reason I like testimony is because there's less emphasis on just the events of our life and emphasis on what we've seen. We're testifying to what we've seen God do. And I want to do that uh, with you this morning. It's a little bit scary. Uh, the scriptures say that God hates a false testimony. One of the reasons I think that's true is because he doesn't, on the one hand, want us to exaggerate what he's done. And sometimes there's pressure to spiff things up and make things more dramatic. And God doesn't need us to lie or exaggerate on his behalf. And it doesn't help any of us in the body of Christ to make things sound simpler or easier than they really are. Uh, but on the other hand, there can be the tendency to understate what God's done for us. And I have to say I'm wrestling with that a little bit this morning. The reason there can be the tendency to understate is to the extent we're honest about what God has really done for us, we have to come clean about where we've blown it, uh, about where we've sinned and where we struggle with weakness. So I want to come clean. Uh, and tell you the marvelous things that God has done for me. It's by his grace and by his mercy that I'm standing here today. Okay. I was, uh, I was born a confused kid. My dad was, uh, came from an affluent European family. He was a German-Jewish refugee, and my mom was uh, a poor, came from a poor homesteading family in Montana. They lost their farm during the Depression, and my grandmother literally lived in a log cabin. 
Uh, I, she had one new store-bought dress, I think, that she wore to church, and the rest of her clothes were bought from Salvation Army. She never owned a mat set of dishes her entire life. They all came from the goodwill. And I, ha I was born, I, I grew up in this family of two radically uh, different worlds. In fact, I never saw my grandparents in the presence of one another. And I, I think from, an, from the earliest age that I can remember, I, I think that there were two defining longings for me. One of them was, um, you're supposed to say this in a testimony, right? But it was, it's really true. From the earliest recollections, I deeply wondered whether there was a God and if there was a God, who he was. We didn't talk about it in my family. Uh, and in fact, I think my dad had a reason not to talk about it, given his experience uh, under Nazism in Germany. I think he had concluded that religion was the cause of human problems. Uh, and the, the other defining longing for me is, and this sounds trite, but um, I wanted to be accepted. Uh, now, I think, that's, I think that's true of everybody, uh, every kid. You, you want to be popular, you want friends. Um, so that, that's true with all of us. I think my consciousness, my awareness of that was exacerbated, again, maybe by, by my dad's experience. I think um, most, and I grew up not only in my family, but all our friends were Holocaust survivors. And these were all people, uh, and this would be true of any group, I think, who has experienced rejection and alienation. And a big deal on their, their plate was uh, the sense of not being acceptable and trying to prove to the world that they were acceptable. And this, this permeated my family in a lot of ways, actually. One of the things that I grew up with from the youngest years, my dad used to tell me, get an education. It's the one thing they can never take away from you. Now, that's interesting if you think about it. The value there actually wasn't on knowledge. It was on an education for the sake of the power it gave you. And who was it that would take things away from us anyways? With all due respect, <laughs> you guys, the goy. It's the one thing that the world of Gentiles can never take away from us if we get an education. I don't think I got it until later on, but, um, but the bottom line is uh, in my family of growing up, there was just this faint sense that the world was mad, that the world was crazy. And I think I grew up believing that. And actually, I still believe it. Uh, I just believe that Jesus is the solution to that, that madness. So I longed for those, those two things. And uh, I noted that nobody ever talked about him. I mean, in, ed in school, nobody ever talked about God. Nobody ever talked about friendship. Nobody... Uh, in school or, or elsewise, people didn't seem to be talking about the things that mattered. And the very first time I encountered somebody talking about what seemed to me to really matter was somebody invited me to a Young Life meeting when I was a senior in high school. And I, I still remember the talk uh, a guy named Tim Hansel gave. And, I wanted, and he talked about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The first time in my life I'd ever heard of such a thing. And I loved the idea, and I wanted it to be true. But I didn't think I had the evidence.
to believe it was true. And I spent several months, actually, wrestling with this. And one day, I decided, this is the day I'm going to decide. I got in the car, and I drove to the beach. I watched the sunset, deciding, can I really believe that the, the beauty of this sunset and this earth was made by a loving God with a purpose for humanity and a purpose for me and the desire to have relationship with me? And I made a decision. Uh, because I promised myself I wasn't going to come back to the, from the beach until I decided. And I decided, no, I can't really believe it. I want to believe it. But I just don't have intellectual merit to believe it. And I decided no. And some weeks after that, actually, I heard a different message. I heard another gospel. Uh, it was on a radio show. Uh, where they were interviewing a Harvard psychologist named Timothy Leary. And uh, Timothy Leary said, you know, the, the most important thing in life is to find out what life is all about. It's not what we achieve. It's not what we attain. It's not what we accomplish. It's what, who we are on the inside. I thought, yeah, that's what I believe. And he said, the way to become who we really are on the inside is to drop out of society. It's mad. Uh, and a little hallucinogenic drugs could help you along this journey of self-discovery. <laughs> and uh, now there are lots of people that were along for the ride on this, for drugs, sex, and rock and roll. But I, I actually, that struck my heart. I believed it. Uh, and I did. Drop out. Uh, so after my freshman year of college, uh, I went to Hawaii with some buddies. Uh, some surfing friends, and when it was time to come back to school, they all came back, and I called my parents, and I said I wasn't coming back to school or to home. There was nothing there for me. I didn't believe that school was going to help me answer the questions that I was wrestling with, and I didn't know anybody, except maybe this Tim Hansel guy, who even seemed to be wrestling with these questions. I decided that I didn't know anything. I didn't, not only did I not know if there was a God or not, but I didn't really have any solid ground for believing what I was taught was right all my life was right, or what I was taught was wrong all my life was wrong. In fact, I worried that I could never get married or even have a family. How could I raise a kid, children, if uh, I was so profoundly uncertain? And I, in those times, I made a decision, and I've actually wrestled with whether to share this or not. But I decided um, that not only didn't I know what was right or wrong, but that my life was a lie because I was following a bunch of rules that I had no confidence in were true, and I decided to live as if I didn't know what was right or wrong. In other words, I consciously decided to live without any of the rules, uh, any of the rules that I had brought, been brought up with. And even in a non-religious family, I mean, there are rules like don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder. And I thought, decided any of that was fair game. By the way, I'm, I'm not proud of that decision. Um, it may sound like, um, and I think at the time I thought it was, I thought it was uh, the most integrous decision I could possibly make. It's like radical, it wasn't just intellectual skepticism, it was existential skepticism. Doubt every rule, live as if you don't know they're true, and then do the grand experiment and see where it shakes out. 
Uh, I think a good faith decision, and the one I pray for my own children when they go through times of doubt, would have been live in accord with what you suspect or hope is true. But I did the opposite, and I think there was a lot of anger there, a lot of pain that went into fueling that decision. And my life, if a life can have a dark ages, by the way, that was the dark ages of my life. Things unraveled very quickly. I've actually wondered if... uh, Actually, I'm not going to share with you uh, where that led me in terms of my own behavior. Uh, It certainly led me to the prevailing uh, ethos of the day, the drug, sex, and rock and roll, but way beyond that. Uh, And the people that I hung with were serious criminals. Uh, I came back to Santa Barbara, actually, when I got my job at Westmont, just a little parenthesis. One of my buddies from those days in Hawaii was on the TV news. They said that the murder trial of his name had concluded. He just was going to jail for murdering his girlfriend in a cocaine-induced fit. And I I found out a couple of things uh, from those days. Uh, The first thing was that even though I lacked intellectual justification for what I believed, I found that my conscience (laughs) was still there. Even though I might not know why things were right and wrong, there were certain things that just, at the core of my being, just felt wrong. I was actually surprised uh, at what some of them were. I mean, one of them, which uh, I wouldn't have guessed, one of them was stealing. Most of my friends in that time made their living by stealing, either serious breaking and entering kind or shoplifting or we could have written a book about how to eat and run, get free meals from restaurants. Uh, but I actually I didn't feel okay with that. I began to, to get my meals another way. There was an open-air restaurant close to the beach in a place called the International Marketplace, and there was a Filipino busboy there, and I'd go in around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and this was just an unspoken agreement. I never had a conversation with him. I'd just help him bus tables for a half an hour or so, and he would leave me uh, meals on the table that were not fully eaten. Uh, four o'clock was a great time because it wasn't lunchtime and tourists were yet to have dinner, so lots of times there were half pizzas that were uneaten or uh, chicken McNuggets or fish and chips. If you don't want a hamburgers, because those have been, you have to eat where other people are, have bitten. So. Uh, By the way, it took my wife many years to break me of that habit. (laughs) But she told me by the time we had kids, I had to to stop doing it. So that was my mode of subsistence, uh, due to conscience, actually. But the other thing I, I discovered was that I had a growing sense of profound pollution, uh, internal pollution over, over the stuff I had done and the people I was hanging with. I had a sense of being way over my head, uh, by the way, but no real sense of how to get out. And the only, only real way out, the only moments of peace that I had in those days was uh, late afternoons, actually. I would paddle out uh, to the surf break and watch the lights of the city turn on and as the sun set 
back in those days, it was actually possible to uh, have waves to yourself at Waikiki late in the afternoon or early in the morning, and there were these marvelous moments of, of, um, of internal peace, actually, where the only sounds that I would hear, punctuated by an occasional horn from the traffic, uh, the only sounds I would hear were the spray of the, the wave as it flung in my face. And yet, even in those moments, uh, those moments of returning to myself and uh, quiet self-reflection, there was this uneasiness. And this was the first time I ever experienced this before. The uneasiness was the sense that uh, if there was a God, uh, the traditional God that uh, I'd begun to hear about, a holy God, that, and if I died, I wasn't ready to meet him. Now, we don't talk much about that uh, with each other, the notion of a judging God. But I actually think, you know, the uh, scriptures say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think that was the sanest uh, insight I ever had in my young life. Uh, forget all the intellectual doubts about whether people who don't have the gospel, where they're going. That wasn't my concern. My concern was where I was going. And I had the sense that if there was a God... Uh, I was not right. I was not okay. And in that moment, I want to tell you, uh, I met a beautiful human being named Bill. I don't know his last name. Uh, he reached across numerous barriers. He was the old generation. I was the young one. He was black. I was white. He was in the military. Uh, and I was a draft dodger. And he was in Hawaii on R 11 days R&R &R from Vietnam, and he came up to me on the street and he said, hey, you look like you could use a meal. Can I take you out for dinner? And I was always glad for a free meal, and I said, sure. And he said, but I want to tell you in advance, if you come with me, what I want to do is I want to talk with you about Jesus Christ. And the candor just uh, disarmed me. And I said, sure, I'll talk about Jesus. And actually, I wasn't just doing it for the meal at that point. I wanted to know what motive made this guy tick. And so... We talked, and he shared with me all that Christ had done with him in his life. And then he began to ask me questions. He said, Jeff, do you take drugs? Do you steal? Do you do this? Do you do that? And I said yes to all those questions. And I saw in his face something that I had actually never seen before. Uh, when other people had become aware of what I was doing, I, when it was my friends, you know, they thought it was all cool. And when it was other people, what I sensed was judgment. You know, you scumbag, how can you live like that? Uh, and what I saw in his eyes was brokenheartedness. No judgment, just compassion. And I asked him, and as I said yes to all those things, I asked him, I can't believe I asked him such a superficial question, but I said, well, Bill, don't you do any of those things? He said, no, to be honest, I don't. And I said, well, what do you do for fun? And he looked at me and he said, Jeff, what I'm doing right now is the most fun that I have in life. It's sharing Jesus Christ with other people. And I knew at that moment that this guy was either totally crazy, I really, I consciously thought this, this human being is either insane or he has exactly what I'm looking for. I think it was the first time in my life that I met somebody with a totally controlling, interiorly motivated life mission. He wasn't doing this to earn spiritual browning points. He loved it. He loved talking about Christ. 
and I decided I wanted what he had. I still, how do I know it's true? So here's as far as I got. I got as far as praying with him that if Jesus were real, he would reveal himself to me. Uh, and I meant the prayer. We prayed it together. I don't even know his last name. I'll see him in heaven. Uh, and I went back to school and decided I'd be a religious studies major. Uh, read the Bible, read the Bhagavad Gita, the uh, Zen koans, read as many things as I possibly could to figure out who God is and if Bill's God was really the real God. And I decided that if I really meant it, that if I really wanted to know who God was, I better clean up my life. I mean, it didn't make much sense for me to continue to be living in debauchery and expecting God to reveal himself to me. In fact, my RD, I, uh, and I also discovered that having made that decision, I couldn't do it. I found, it was the first time I really tried to stop doing some of the things that I was doing, and I found that they had a tighter grip on me uh, than I ever understood. And I actually could not stop. My RD referred to me, not affectionately, by the way, uh, as an accident looking for a place to happen. And one night as I laid down in, in, in my bed in the dorm room, I uttered a prayer that I feared was blasphemous. I, I actually remember I feared if there was a holy God, he might strike me dead uh, for this prayer. But it was completely honest, completely discouraged. I just said, God, I give up. If, you're, if I'm ever going to get to know you, you're going to have to accept me just as I am. And the microsecond that prayer was done in my mind, the presence of God flooded the room and flooded my heart. It was so real that I wanted to shout out to my roommate, Denny, God is in the room. I used to not share this, actually, because of my fear to exalt the experience over the experience giver. But I do have to say that this was the most glorious, loving, lovely personal presence uh, that I had ever experienced or could ever imagine experiencing. I'd never read about such an experience. I'd never he heard the term Holy Spirit before. But it irrevocably changed my life. I knew there was a God. I knew he was personal. I was totally unashamed about telling my friends that the only thing that mattered from that moment on was to be with that being forever. But I didn't know who that being was yet. Uh, I think of it kind of as a Cornelius experience. Remember Cornelius had a vision from angels telling him that people were going to come to tell him. Uh, and Paul, by the way, when he's knocked off the horse, he knew it was God. He said, who art thou, Lord? There was something self-authenticating about the experience, but he didn't know yet who it was. Jesus had to tell him, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. And so that was my cry, who art thou, Lord? And sometime later, uh, some street Christians invited me into a rally. A man was preaching there who actually had quite an effective ministry with street people and drug addicts. His name was David Wilkerson. But he just laid out the whole thing. Christ's death on the cross, heaven and hell, the second coming of Christ. I'd never heard all of that before. I can't tell you why. Uh, I knew that I knew that that was true. 
uh, and that same presence was there. Uh, and I gave my heart to Christ that night. I had a profound sense of being completely forgiven and accepted by God. Ancient, the old revivalists speak of the expulsive power of a new affection. Uh, and I fell in love with Jesus that night. It doesn't happen this way for everyone, I understand, but for me, the, the expulsive power of this new affection simply broke the shackles that I had to substance abuse. That was the last time I ever took drugs. Uh, my RD, actually, the guy who said, you're an accident looking for a place to happen, he came up to me afterwards and he said, uh, I've been a residence assistant for 10 years and I have a master's in psychology. I've never seen anybody change as much as you have. And a friend asked me why I had changed so much. And I actually gave thought to the answer. I could have said, well, because I'm a Christian now, but I wanted to, I wanted to ask myself, well, why? I mean, why have I changed? And actually the answer was self-evident. I was surprised what came out, but what I told her, her name was Kathy. I said, Kathy, at the very core of my being, I'm not alone anymore. And that was my experience of, of Christ, not alone. At Passover one day, uh, my uncle was, in those times, my uncle was kind of in love. My uncle loves me. was ragging on me, Jeff, what do you need this intermediary for? Why, why isn't the God of our people good enough for you? And my dad, um, only time in my life I've ever heard him say anything about religion. He said, Gary, shut up. I don't know who this Jesus is, but all I can say is the changes that he's made in my son's life, God bless him. Okay. And after, after uh, several months of honeymoon, actually, I was driving down the road one day and I looked across at a miniature golf course. I don't know where this thought came from. I just remembered playing miniature golf, stoned. <laughs> it was one of those things, or going... We used to go bowling stoned and mimic whatever the person in the lane next to us did after they released the bowling ball. And I thought... We didn't care about bowling, but... I thought, uh, am I never going to do that again? I mean, never. Okay, you've been a Christian for six months. Is this something you want to do for the rest of your life? Look back 30 years from now, and you've never done any of this stuff ever again. It, I did not have the sense that the Holy Spirit was asking me. In fact, it was me asking me. And I thought, yeah. This is the life I want. I want to walk with Christ the rest of my life. Now what I want to do in closing, and this would be another chapel, I apologize, but this is the chapel I felt uh, God asking me to give. It is 30 years later. Uh, and walking with Christ over 30 years hasn't been automatic. It wasn't determined by a decision 30 years ago. I found that the mercy and the sustaining power of, of Christ uh, has gone way beyond the power of my decision 
to, to walk with him. And I want to share a, a couple of ways that he has done that. The first way is um, through the scriptures, actually. I thought early on that the way Jesus was going to make me into his image was by just zapping me with the Holy Spirit uh, at regular intervals. And in fact, he did the opposite. Now, different ways of working with us for different people, but uh, God needed to wean me from the need for experience. And I went many years without another experience of his Holy Spirit. But what sustained me was his promises in Scripture. There are countless ways I could share that with you, but I want to tell you one story. I was with a friend, uh, a drummer in a band once, collecting money for some drums he has sold in an area of town that we should have never, never been. And I witnessed him being shot. And the guy turned to me, and rather than shoot me, he looked in my eyes and he said, you better get out of here. And the sense of uh, being overwhelmed with the evil of that moment, the sound, the crack of the gun in those hollow streets, I went home and I felt, uh, felt totally abandoned by God. I didn't know what to do. It was 3 a.m. I couldn't call anybody. I got to the foot of my bed, literally got on my knees, and I said, Jesus, meet me. And I opened the Bible, poked my finger down to where it ended up, and it was this. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in darkness or the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your left hand and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him and I'll set him securely on high because he has known my name. Now, all that was was for me through the scriptures of not, not, not the promise that I'm not going to get shot tomorrow, uh, but that God holds my life in his hands. Uh, and there have been countless other ways. I know the scriptures teach God's principles, uh, but he has deeply ministered to me by injecting his promises into my life at times of need through the Bible. Uh, and to get that, you have to read the Bible. <laughs> so that's been a life-sustaining discipline for me. There are many others, but uh, the one I want to close with and the one that's uh, actually most difficult to share uh, is, involves the discipline of confession and continual access of the mercy and transforming power of Jesus. It's an indescribable privilege but also an almost insufferable offense. Uh, it's a privilege because no matter how many times we blow it, Jesus is there not only willing to forgive us, but to cleanse us, to literally get on his knees and wash our feet. But it's an offense because I have to say, after 30 years, I would like to think that I've gotten to the point where I don't need it, where I don't have to come to God as a beggar. My initial experience of life in Christ, I really thought, just like he did for drugs, that he was going to do it for every other area of temptation, weakness, and sin in my life, that he was just going to yank it out and that would be the end of it. Maybe he'd do it instantaneously. Maybe he'd do it over the long term through the building of my character. 
But that's not been my experience, actually. My experience has not been that I have this character bank account that I can draw from. But in many areas, I have to go to God like a little kid asking for an allowance uh, to sustain me in my battle against sin. And the one single greatest help has been, for me, a small group of men with whom I could be completely transparent about my sins. I don't mean 90% or 98%, I mean everything. Everything hideous, heinous sin that I've ever done or that I do, every lust of the heart. Uh, and again, for me, when I have that group, I have two modes in the Christian life, <laughs> failure and not. Uh, I'm really grateful that a dear friend who has occupied that role for me in the past, Bob Blackbird, is here this morning. Uh, but 100% transparency, confession, uh, has been my lifeline, my lifeline, to walk in Christ, just as I am. <laughs>